www.kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover, Open Book. As we commemorate the 61st anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, host Trin Lei explores the stories of war and how we understand the violence of war beyond guns and bombs. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. My name is Jin Lei, and I'm your host for the afternoon. Today's show features the work of Julie Utska and Lei Tiyim Tui, both of whom have written novels about families living in the shadow of war. How do people live through war? Whose stories are told? And how do we understand the violence of war beyond bombs and guns? These are a few of the questions raised in the writing I share with you today. Julie Utsuka's novel, When the Emperor Was Divine, tells the story of a Japanese-American family interned during World War II. The book focuses not on the politics and policies of the internment, but on the emotional and physical experience of displacement as it is felt by each of the family members. In the following segment, you hear excerpts from the book, as well as excerpts from an interview with the author. come for him just after midnight, three men in suits and ties and black fedoras with FBI badges under their coats. Grab your toothbrush, they said. This was back in December, right after Pearl Harbor, when they were still living in the White House on the wide street in Berkeley, not far from the sea. The Christmas tree was up, and the whole house smelled of pine, and from his window the boy had watched, as they led his father out across the lawn in his bathrobe and slippers to the black car that was parked at the curb. He had never seen his father leave the house without his hat on before. That was what had troubled him most. No hat, and those slippers, battered and faded, with the rubber soles curling up at the edges. If only they had let him put on his shoes, then it all might have turned out differently. In the late 80s, we were moving my grandmother out of the house where she lived for 60 years in Berkeley since the 1920s. And in her fireplace, we just found a box of letters that she apparently wanted to burn, but they were letters that her husband had written to her during the first year of the war. There was a separate set of camps uh, for men who had been arrested by the FBI. Um, so these are letters that he'd written to his wife and children in the camps where they were being held. And that's where I got my sort of first glimpse of what life might have been like for him during the war. And I know that after the war, that he was in very, very poor health. He had three strokes, and he could never work again. And he was really just, I think, sort of shattered by that experience. Suddenly, my grandmother, who'd never worked a day in her life, she, well, she taught school in Japan before coming to the States, but she hadn't worked in the States. She, she had to support the family somehow, so she just went out and she began cleaning houses, which is what she did for the next 30 years. So I do feel like life for my mother and her family was turned upside down and the man her father who had always seemed very very strong suddenly became very weak and was 
uh, unable to provide. And I think there was some resentment there, you know, on my grandmother's part towards her husband, even though, of course, it wasn't really his fault. Things just didn't turn out the way that they expected them to turn out. The next morning, his sister had wandered through the house, looking for the last place their father had sat. Was it the red chair? Or the sofa? The edge of his bed? She had pressed her face to the bedspread and sniffed. The edge of my bed, their mother had said. That evening, she had lit a bonfire in the yard and burned all of the letters from Kagoshima. She burned the family photographs and the three silk kimonos she had brought over with her 19 years ago from Japan. She burned the records of Japanese opera. She ripped up the flag of the red rising sun. She smashed the tea set and the imari dishes and the framed portrait of the boy's uncle, who had once been a general in the emperor's army. She smashed the abacus and tossed it into the flames. From now on, she said, we're counting on our fingers. Oh, I think so much of what I could have inherited is very, very sort of on a very subterranean, unspoken level. I know that there's a lot of anger in my family. It's like a lot of anger has been passed down from my grandmother to my mother. To me, I do feel like that experience in some ways just sort of, just sort of wrecked the family. And I feel like it really, it did shape my mother and the way she sort her outlook on life. I felt like she was very, in some ways, just very sort of suspicious and wary and, you know, just always worried that something could go wrong. Um, and I'm sure that it's a result of what happened to her and her family when she was very young. All through October, the days were still warm, like summer. But at night, the mercury dropped. And in the morning, the sagebrush was sometimes covered with frost. Twice in one week, there were dust storms. The sky turned suddenly gray, and then a hot wind came screaming across the desert, churning up everything in its path. From inside the barracks, the boy could not see the sun or the moon or even the next row of barracks on the other side of the gravel path. All he could see was dust. The wind rattled the windows and doors, and the dust seeped like smoke through the cracks in the roof. And at night, he slept with a wet handkerchief over his mouth to keep out the smell. In the morning when he woke, the wet handkerchief was dry, and in his mouth there was the gritty taste of chalk. A dust storm would blow for hours, and sometimes even days, and then, just as suddenly as it had begun, it would stop, and for a few seconds the world was perfectly silent. Then a baby would begin to cry, or a dog would start barking, and from out of nowhere, a flock of white birds would mysteriously appear in the sky. While I was there, I swung down to Delta, which is the town that's closest to the site of the camp where my mother was interned. And there's a school teacher there who's been teaching her students about what happened nearby at the camp for years. She took me out to see the site of the camp. It was a very eerie, sort of otherworldly landscape. It's just very, very desolate. Nothing grows there except for sagebrush. It was January, so it was very, the, everything was very brown and dry, and there's just nothing for miles in any direction. And you can still see the concrete foundations of the barracks, and the ground was littered with uh, shards of crockery and pieces of broken glass and rusty nails. So you could tell that at one time many, many people have lived there. On a warm evening in April, 
A man was shot dead by the barbed wire fence. The guard who was on duty said the man had been trying to escape. He'd called out to him four times, the guard said, but the man had ignored him. Friends of the dead man said he had simply been taking his dog for a walk. He might not have heard the guard, they said, because he was hard of hearing, or because of the wind. One man who had gone to the scene of the accident right after the shooting had noticed a rare and unusual flower on the other side of the fence. It was his belief that his friend had been reaching out to pick the flower when the shot had been fired. Very strange. It was that the original barbed wire fence was still there. In my head, I had mentioned that fence thing about ten feet high, and really it was about maybe three and a half or four feet high. And so it looked like you easily could have hopped the fence. But of course, if you did try to do that, you'd be shot at by the guards. It was a slightly disturbing experience, also for one reason, and that is there is a commemorative plaque that had been put up nearby in memory of the Japanese Americans who had been interned in the camp, and it was made out of metal and it had been shot up it was riddled with bullet holes so somebody had used it as a target for shooting practice a new uh, commemorative plaque had recently been installed which this uh, teacher took me to see and it was it, there were some words on a metal plaque and it was embedded in this very large um, indestructible piece of I don't know granite or so some sort of um, rock that night the night of our first day back in the world the world from which we had earlier been sent away, we locked all the windows and doors and unrolled our blankets on the floor of the room at the foot of the stairs that looked out onto the street. Without thinking, we had sought out the room whose dimensions, long and narrow, with two windows on one end and a door at the other, most closely resembled those of the room in the barracks in the desert where we had lived during the war. Without thinking, we had configured ourselves exactly as we had in that long, narrow room during the war, our mother in the far corner, away from the windows, the two of us lying head to toe along the wall on the opposite side of the room. Without thinking, we had chosen to sleep together in a room with our mother, even though for more than three years we had been dreaming of the day when we could finally sleep alone in our own rooms, in our old house, our old white stucco house on the broad tree-lined street not far from the sea. That, um, I mean, right after the war, I think the generation that came out of the camps really repressed that experience and tried to put it behind them. And I feel like right after the war, people weren't really ready to hear the story of the Japanese Americans and what had happened to them. Maybe now people are readier to hear that story, but I do feel like you need some distance to be able to really look at that experience. And yet, at the same time, many people process that experience in, in very, very different ways. I mean, I think that the Buddhists were probably more accepting of their fate and what had happened to them. And uh, I think that the Christians were probably more active in the fight for redress and reparations. Um, and I think that that fight was actually very important for the Japanese-American community um, and to finally get an official apology for the government, even though it was years later, 1988, I think, meant a lot. As important as the government's apology was just the Japanese-Americans' willingness to finally speak up and, and ask for some a form of 
um, redress. Later on in the evening, we turned on the radio and heard one of the same programs we had listened to before the war, The Green Hornet. And it was as if we had never been away at all. Nothing's changed, we said to ourselves. The war had been an interruption, nothing more. We would pick up our lives where we had left off and go on. We would go back to school again. We would study hard every day to make up for lost time. We would seek out our old classmates. Where were you, they'd ask. Or maybe they would just nod and say, hey. We would join their clubs after school if they let us. We would listen to their music. We would dress just like they did. We would change our names to sound more like theirs. And if our mother called out to us on the street by our real names, we would turn away and pretend not to know her. We would never be mistaken for the enemy again. While I was writing the book, I saw it as a piece of historical fiction, and I, and I really honestly never thought that anything like internment could happen again um, until 9-11. I mean, my grandfather was classified as being a dangerous enemy alien, which I think is very um, much like being called an enemy combatant. He and the men who were arrested by the FBI were given what we'll call loyalty hearings, but of course the records of those hearings have disappeared. The Department of Justice claims not to know where they are. Um, the men were not allowed to have a trial by jury. They were not allowed to object to the government's evidence against them. They were not uh, allowed to have the services of a lawyer, which sounds a lot like what's happening, I think, to the prisoners at Guantanamo. I mean, I'm I'm glad that the book, you know, has some resonance to what's going on now, but it also makes me um, sad. It just makes me think that we haven't learned anything at all from history. So, I, I mean, I do think it's important to look at, look at the past and try to learn from that. It's happened at the time of my life When I leave, it's sacred It's happened at the time of my life When I leave Twee's novel, The Gangster We Are All Looking For, follows a family struggling with the complexities of war, displacement, loving, and loss. It is one of only a few works of fiction to tell a story in which Vietnamese people are given space to be more than just victims or aggressors of war. Up next, you hear the author reading an excerpt from her novel. Vietnam is a black and white photograph of my grandparents sitting in bamboo chairs in their front courtyard. They're sitting tall and proud, 
surrounded by chickens and a rooster. Between their feet and the dirt of the courtyard are thin sandals. My grandfather's broad forehead is shining. So too are my grandmother's famous sad eyes. The animals are oblivious, pecking at the ground. This looks like a wedding portrait, though it is actually a photograph my grandparents had taken late in life for their children, especially for my mother. When I think of this portrait of my grandparents in their last years, I always envision a beginning. To or toward what, I don't know, but always a beginning. When my mother, a Catholic schoolgirl from the South, decided to marry my father, a Buddhist gangster from the North, her parents disowned her. This is in the photograph, though it is not visible to the eye. If it were, it would be a deep impression across the soft dirt of my grandparents' courtyard. Her father chased her out of the house, beating her with the same broom she had used every day of her life, from the time she could stand up and sweep until that very morning that she was chased away. Ma says love came to her in a dark movie theater. She doesn't remember what movie it was or why she'd gone to see it, only that she'd gone alone and found herself sitting beside him. In the dark, she couldn't make out his face but noticed that his profile was handsome. She wondered if he knew she was watching him out of the corner of her eye, watching him without embarrassment or shame, watching him with a strange curiosity, a feeling that made her want to trace and retrace his silhouette with her fingertips, until she'd memorized every feature and could call his face to mind in any dark place she passed through. Later, in the shadow of the beached fishing boats, on the blackest nights of the year. She would call him to mind, his face a warm companion for her body on the edge of the sea. In the early days of my parents' courtship, my mother told stories. She confessed elaborate dreams about the end of war. Foods she'd eat, a banquet table, mangoes piled to the ceiling. Songs she'd make up and sing, clapping her hands over her head, and throwing her hair like a horse's mane. Dances she'd dance, hopping from one foot to the other. Unlike the responsible favorite daughter or sister she was to her family, with my father in the forest, my mother became reckless, drunk on her youth and the possibilities of love. Ignoring the chores to be done at home, she rolled her pants up to her knees, stuck her bare feet in puddles, and learned to smoke a cigarette. She tied a vermilion ribbon in her hair. She became moody. She did her chores as though they were favors to her family, forgetting that she ate the same rice, was dependent on the same supply of food. It seemed to her the face that now stared back at her from deep inside the family well was the face of a woman she had never seen before. At night she lay in bed and thought of his hands, 
the way his thumb flicked down on the lighter and brought fire to her cigarette. She began to wonder what the forests were like before the American planes had come, flying low, raining something onto the trees that left them bare and dying. She remembered her father had once described to her the smiling broadness of leaves, jungles thick in the tangle of rich soil. My first memory of my father's face is framed by the coiling barbed wire of a military camp in South Vietnam. My mother's voice crosses through the wire. She is whispering his name and with this utterance caressing him. Over and over she calls him to her. Anmen. Anmen. His name becomes a tree she presses her body against. The calling blows around them like a warm breeze. And when she utters her own name, it is the second half of a verse that begins with his. She drops her name like a pebble into a well. She wants to be engulfed by him. Anmen. M. Me. Anmen. M. Me. The barbed wire gates open and she crosses through to him. She arrives warm, the slightest film of sweat on her bare arms. To his disbelieving eyes, she says, It's me. It's me. Shy and formal and breathless, my parents are always meeting for the first time, savoring the sound of a name, marveling at the bones of the face, cupped by the bones of the hand. I trail behind them, the tip of their dragon's tail. I am drawn along, like a silken banner on the body of a kite. <laughs> I was born in the alley behind my grandparents' house. At three in the morning, my mother dragged herself out of the bed in the smaller house where she and my father lived after they married. My father was away fighting in the war. Ma's youngest sister had come to live with her, helping her with my older brother, who was just a baby then. Ma left the two of them sleeping in the hammock, my brother lying in the crook of my aunt's arm, and set out alone. She cut a crooked line on the beach, moving in jerky steps like a ball tossed on the waves. She seemed to be bounced along without direction. She walked to the schoolhouse and sat on the ground before it, leaning against the first step. She felt grains of sand pressing against her back. Each grain was a minute pinprick, and the pain grew and grew. Soon she felt as though her back would erupt, awash in blood. She thought, I'm going to bleed to death. She put her hands on her belly. We're going to die. In front of the schoolhouse lay a long metal tube. No one knew where it came from. It seemed to have been there always. Children hid inside it, crawled through it, spoke to each other from either ends of it, marched across it, sat upon it, and confided secrets beside it. There had been so little to play with during the school recess. This long metal tube became everything. A tarp was suspended over it to shield it from the sun. The tube looked like a blackened log in a room without walls. When the children sat in a line on the tube, their heads bobbing this way and that in conversation, 
It seemed they were sitting on a canopied raft. The night I was born, my mother, looking at the tube, imagined it to be the badly burnt arm of a dying giant buried in the sand. She could not decide whether he had been buried and was trying to get out, or whether he had tried to bury himself in the sand, but had failed to cover his arm in time. In time for what? She had heard a story about a girl in a neighboring town who was killed during a napalm bombing. The bombing happened on an especially hot night when this girl had walked to the beach to cool her feet in the water. They found her floating on the sea. The phosphorus from the napalm made her body glow like a lantern. In her mind, my mother built a canopy for this girl. She started to cry, thinking of the buried giant, the floating girl. These bodies stopped in mid-stride on their way somewhere. She began to walk toward the tube. She had a sudden urge to be inside it. The world felt dangerous to her, and she was alone. At the mouth of the tube, she bent down, her belly blocking the mouth. She tried the other side, the other mouth. Again, her belly stopped her. But I remember, she muttered out loud. As a girl, I sometimes slept in here. This was what she wanted now, to sleep inside the tube. Massa's war is a bird with a broken wing, flying over the countryside, trailing blood and burying crops in sorrow. If something grows in spite of this, it is both a curse and a miracle. When I was born, she cried to know that it was war I was breathing in, and she could never shake it out of me. Massa's war makes it dangerous to breathe, though she knows. You die if you don't. She says she could have thrown me against the wall until I broke or coughed up this war that is killing us all. She could have stomped on it in the dark and danced on it like a madwoman dancing on gravestones. She could have ground it down to powder and spat on it, but didn't I know? War has no beginning and no end. It crosses oceans. Like a splintered boat, filled with people singing a sad song. Yêu nhau cởi áo à, cho nhau về nhà, rồi rằng cha rồi mẹ, rằng hà ơi à quá cầu. Rằng hà ơi à quá cầu Tình 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 gió bay Tình 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 gió bay Yêu nhau cởi nón nơi à cho nhau về nhà Rồi rằng cha rồi mẹ Rằng à ơi à quá cầu, 
tình 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 gió bay tình 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 gió bay yêu nhau cây nhân ơi à cho nhau về nhà rồi rằng cha rồi mẹ rằng à ơi à quá cầu rằng à ơi à quá cầu tình 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 đánh rơi tình 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 đánh rơi I hope the words you heard on today's show stay with you as we all move through this current period of war. Thank you for listening and please join us next week on Cover to Cover. <laughs>